0: Teen Minds Redefined. You're listening to the podcast with Cheryl Pankhurst. Welcome to another episode of Teen Minds Redefined, where we strive to redefine the relationships we have with our teens. We want to foster them to become their own authentic selves as they grow into these beautiful human beings on the planet. And today I have a wonderful guest, Dr. Alan Mueller. And uh, Dr. Alan Mueller is a passionate advocate for authentic transformation. He started adaptive challenge consulting in 2014 to help organizations navigate their greatest challenges through listening and real conversations. Dr. Mueller has worked in finance, sales, higher education, and even hospitality. Through his unique journey of failures and successes, he has gained insight into organizational leadership and development. Dr. Mueller always brings authenticity and humor with him, whether assisting organizations on their inclusion efforts or helping them evaluate their programs. Welcome, Dr. Alan Mueller.
1: Thank you so much. That that bio makes me feel feel important. <laughs> well,
0: you are. <laughs> Thanks. And Thanks. and full disclosure, I want to say this because. We find our guests from very different places. I sure. do anyway. Um, I never pay a guest. They never pay me to guest. But we look on, you know, we can be on Facebook groups. I could be on Instagram and see somebody's energy and not know um, how many followers they have or what they have or who they are and just say, oh, I really like their energy. So I believe we were on Facebook group for, I think, guesting on podcasts. Uh huh. And, your blurb about your kids and your life. And I'm like, okay, I want him on here. Energy is like standard. And so the energy that we exchange is never money. It is the energy where we feel like this is what I want to bring to my audience. These are parents of teens, mainly. Um, I do hope that parents can, you know, Coerce their kids into listening to some of these podcasts on the way to the mall if you want to ride this is what you have to listen
1: to your kids you can't still go to the mall i thought that i thought that stopped in
0: the 80s <laughs> okay listen <laughs> we're gonna have a problem if you're gonna age me through this whole well
1: time. i feel i feel like we're, we're in a pretty similar zone so i mean i feel like right. we had the, the best music and um bring from garden hoses and and wrote on rusty slides and things yeah, yeah.
0: And my yeah. kids are wearing the clothes I wore in the 80s. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> They're back in back style. To the
0: That's right. <laughs> wow. Wow. So um, I want to start with, you have love and logic parenting, uh, developmental psychology of teens. I want to talk about that. And I find that. When I, when I sit down and say, oh, I want to ask this, and I want to ask this, and I want to ask this, and then we start talking, and we never get to there because then we start talking about something else that's really important. So talk to me first about what you do, who you are, this whole kid thing that you have in your house.
1: Yes. So, I, um, so, uh, so I spent 20 years in sort of a career uh, working with college students, and so I uh, worked in this thing called student affairs, and student affairs is all the things that make colleges and universities tick outside the classroom. So it's the career center. It's the counseling center. It's the uh, it's the residence halls. It's the multicultural center. It's all those things. Uh, and then I'm married to a school counselor. Uh, my my wife is uh, works with child, like little children, kindergarten through fifth. But both of us, at the heart of what we studied in our master's degrees, was developmental psychology. Right. It's that the idea. And if your listeners aren't familiar with with that notion, it's just the idea that. When someone's a kindergartner, they're making sense of the world in a certain way. And by the time they're a third grader, they're going to be making sense of the world in a more complex way and on and on and on. And then when they're a teenager and then when they're a young adult, et cetera. And so um, developmental psychology and the idea that that uh, people are learning and growing constantly is at the heart of what both of us studied formally. Um, Then my wife went to a seminar on love and logic parenting and brought a book home right when we had our first kid. And oh my gosh, it was the best thing ever. I, I, I have a 19 year old and a 15 year old. I have never ever had a temper tantrum in my house. I've never had a slammed door with them yelling. You don't understand, which is things that people told me I was going to have with teenagers. Mm-hmm. And and I think my, my experience as a Gen Xer, <clears throat> I mean, I, I think that, that I was used to that, Um and the love and logic system, I, I can't say enough. It's, it's a, an amazing system. Um, and, and two, the thing, the thing that's really cool is when, when I was working in colleges and universities, I'm helping students plan the, the next formal dance, or I'm helping them with a leadership program, but I'm trying to draw out the learning. Yeah. And the love and logic system fit me so well. And, and I I've told my wife, I'm like, this is sort of just sort of what I do in my profession organically. You know, like like be empathetic and hold them accountable and then support them if they need support and don't forget to remind them that consequences happen. Like like the the love and the logic that that, that was a part of my practice anyway. And now there was this book that helped us do it with
0: our kids. So holy grail. Holy grail. Yeah. Empathy yeah. is so um oh I work a lot with um CPS Ross Green, and mm-hmm. it's all about empathy and it's all about you know expectations and, and behavior. The slamming of the doors and the you know the temper tantrums are just secondary just a piece of communication saying ah, i can't do what you need me to do and i don't know how to handle that and when we put that lens on and we keep it on tight our relationships with our kids with anyone yeah you know it, it's like people kids students do well when they can and so right. when they can't, then we, it's time for us to sit down and, and have those conversations. And I think it's so important. Um, so it's funny, I worked in student affairs for the last three years. For 25 years, I worked with very high needs students in high okay. school, okay. Um, nonverbal, ASD, physical aggression, a lot of that I wore, I wore a lot of Kevlar for a lot of years. Yeah. And then the last few years of my role was also in student affairs in a high school. So helping kids get ready for post-secondary and it overlapped because I was also that disabilities advocate where, you know, there's there's a lot of steps you can take. There's a lot of supports in colleges and universities now. And so it's that transition. So I feel you. First of all, I send a trophy to your wife because those younger kids. Nope. Yep. Nope. Yep. I, I don't know how teachers do it. Uh, I love teenagers. I love to sit in a room with them. I love their energy. I love yep. their honesty most of the time. Yep. And, and I say this all the time. I sometimes rather spend time with teenagers than some adults. But the younger kids, hats off. <laughs> yeah.
1: and, and I'll tell you, in our community in North Carolina, um, we live in a metro region with about two and a half million people. That's three mid-sized cities. Um, but in our County, she works at the only inclusion school, elementary school, that's an inclusion school. Um, and then the college I worked at two colleges ago, which was the only Quaker college in the South of the U S um, was, uh, known very, very well in the autistic community as an autism spectrum friendly campus. So we had a, a lot of students and, and we weren't at the universal design stage and I don't know, you know, I don't, yep. yeah, we Absolutely. weren't there, but we, ha- but we had it in, on our radar. Like, in other words, we were striving towards it. Um, and so, so, uh, you know, it, there's, yeah, and there's, there's other stories I could tell there about a class I a class I taught called improv comedy and the art of the job interview. Oh, yes. yes. And so I was, an, I'm an improv comedian. I've been doing it for about nine years and we had this little mini semester, a little like three and a half week term where we could teach one experience based course And I ran the career center and I was like, how do I make applying for jobs not boring? Because, you know, it's not, it's boring. So I was teaching a course called improv comedy and the art of the job interview. And campus where I worked was, was an autism spectrum friendly campus. And students who I taught previously on the spectrum, uh, you know, would typically bring me an accommodation and in the U.S. system, they bring you an accommodation where you alter the course a little bit to provide an environment free of distraction, those kinds of things. And I realized my course could have been called Distraction 101 because improv comedy is like, how do you navigate the art of distraction, right? <sighs> and so I, I when when I had a, an, an autistic student or two take the course, initially I had to think to myself, I, I had some biases I had to unpack, right? Yeah. And then once we got into it, and once you understand that being a good improv comedian is not about being creative and witty, it's about following rules, <sighs> Bingo, and and it not only is about following rules; it's also about like the best improv comics have this amazing ability to sort of zone out on the nonverbals that their partner is giving. Mm-hmm. And if you know something about folks uh, autism spectrum disorder, that's it's not a universal experience, but many people in that community s- quote unquote struggle with. I don't want to, you know, I'm going to put quotes here, mm-hmm. but challenge are challenged by reading nonverbals that that people who aren't on the spectrum read very intuitively. That's actually an amazing asset when you're doing an improv scene to not get in your head about what your your scene partners nonverbals are doing to actually listen to the literal things they're saying. And so within I taught that course for five or six years. And by the time I was in my third year, the secret was out. And I had so many students on the spectrum taking my course. And some of them were the best improvisers I ever taught. And it was That's such
0: amazing. I got
1: to check my own biases a little bit because I, I was like, I was like, well, of course I'm gonna support them and I'm gonna do the accommodations that they need. And but my my I had some anxiety about mm-hmm. their fitting into how I had thought of the class and it was it was uh, education for me as well, which was awesome. becomes a superpower. Oh my gosh, such <laughs> a like like we actually would take the students to the comedy club and one of them vol- was an audience volunteer, got up on stage and did, did this thing. And then my colleagues from the the uh improv troupe later was like, do you think he's interested in joining the troop like like you know I'm like i'm like well he's he's 19 so i don't i don't know you know yeah, <laughs> yeah. but it was it That's was really cool. amazing it was cool. yeah
0: so i could just go down so many different paths but what i want to talk about yeah is and it just kind of struck me this morning and you're going to be that the other side of it so i'm in high school yeah just out of high school. Sorry, sure. Just out of high school. I just retired. I, I <laughs> just know what you meant. School. I was with you. Thank you. With you. And I'm sitting here thinking this morning that the kids who entered grade nine in 2020 are your graduates in September. Yeah. And I don't want to... COVID was here. COVID was there. There's a lot of great things we got out of COVID. I like to try and focus on some of the positives. But... What are we looking at for kids coming in in September in college, university? I'm going to say it's a blanket post-secondary. What do we need to tell parents about allowing that to happen? Because I think what stuck with me the last couple of years were, Oh, we've got to fill these gaps and they're going to get into the first year of college and they're not going to know this and they're not going to know that, but it's global. Everyone is going to be in the same spot emotionally and socially, getting into that first year. Yep. So we don't have to pressure the kids, right? So can right. you talk about that?
1: Sure, sure. So first of all, I, I would always see these reports about, well, our kids are going to be behind, and I'm like, behind who? This was this was a- around the globe. So. So this ultra competitive thing that's very present in the U.S. and in a lot of Western countries, you know, the very competitive thing—it's it, real—and so that weighs on people. And it's something else that's sort of in the background is this idea that, well, my student has to do this, 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 and get perfect grades, and this, 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 to make it to the And oh my gosh, stop! Just stop. Life, life is a, a highway. I'm going to, I'm going to tell your listeners. Um, you're talking to somebody. Uh, I know my bio sounded like I have my stuff together. It took me seven years to finish college. And when I finished, my GPA was two point one six, right? And so I joke with people that like my friends graduated magna cum laude and summa cum laude. I just graduated. Thank the laude. I like, can't believe he even made it. Like, and so and so, you know, I was I had a philosophy degree in my back pocket, and and my skills were mostly I had been a cook and a waiter in a restaurant, right? And so and that was seven years post high school. That's where I found myself with a philosophy mm-hmm. degree with a C C average. And and some skills on on cooking and waiting tables, right? And this idea that um, your 15, 16, 17-year-old has to have a perfect resume and a perfect this and a perfect that to get to the next phase, to get to the next phase, to get to the next phase. We have to demystify that. We have to break that down. Um, I, I also, too, though, as soon as I say it, I realize I grew up kind of white middle class, right? And that there are other communities where Um, some of that perfection is that's going to unlock this for me educationally, which is going to help get me out of poverty, maybe, Mm
0: -hmm. or help
1: raise my profile in a way that is helpful given what I'm navigating in terms of the isms of my community, the racisms and the transphobia and all that jazz. Um, so I, I want to say the both hand, right? The both hand, which is, which is we need to normalize the growth mindset, which is failure is part of life. Failure is a le- can be a, a great learning partner, can be a great old friend. Mm-hmm. Um, I taught another course called um, called Careers in the Arts and on music majors and theater majors. And, uh, and I, I love, I'm a music person and I'm a theater person, but don't have a degree in any of that. So I got together with the faculty from the theater department and the music department. But what I did is I brought in all these other people to be in my class who were actually in the field. And it was people who are like, okay, I'm a full-time dad or a full-time mom, and I do set design. Or um, I'm not rich and famous, but when you need an Afro-Peruvian drummer in New York or New Jersey, I am the person that everyone calls, and I make a living at it, right? Or I'm a session musician in Nashville, and sure, you're not going to see me on any kind of – on a music video, but if you look at the liner credits of half the stuff you're listening to, that's me on the drums kind of thing, right? And these amazing folks – uh, who, just some some amazing amazing stories of failure and success and failure and success. One of the things they kept saying was, "Make friends with rejection." Right? Yeah. Make friends with that, right? And so, so to your point, um, the the whole okay, well, they're entering high sp- they're ent- you know, their post secondary thing at a disadvantage. I'm like, I'm like, okay, then collectively and compared to what? And so it, it doesn't because those people who are entering first year of university, there's a comparable cadre of people who are entering middle school and so so you know the teachers know the educators know the support systems know and the the general principles of how to provide support are still there the general principles of we are you know at colleges and universities typically a lot of there's a lot of time and energy spent on the first year how do we Mm -hmm. help students with that first year because if they get past the first year it's more likely they'll graduate Mm-hmm. And what support systems? it's the orientation program. It's the university one oh one course that's about study skills and those kinds of things. and so you know colleges and universities they're 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 ready they're as ready as they were before, and you know, I mean it's it, even though those students may have lost some of the things that a cohort above them had, mm-hmm. they also gained some things that are fascinating and, and yeah. interesting. And so, you know, I, I think in the grand scheme of things, our kids are much, much more resilient than we think, right? Any first time parents, like at, with my first kid, every time a pacifier fell on the ground, I would sterilize it, boil it and whatever before giving it back to my kid. And then my second kid came along and I was like, wipe it on my shirt. Here you go. Right. Because I, I had to learn that my children, after I had, you know, maybe even dropped my kid on a couch or something, right. Like, or, or, you know, you have to learn that, that kids are, are going to they're going to transcend that are resilient. Yeah. And they, and they, they have this wealth of um, readiness for change. And this is the only, this is the only world they've known. In other yeah. words, th- there's not a non COVID world for them to miss. That exactly. They don't, they don't, they don't miss that because yes. it doesn't, it doesn't exist to
0: them. Yeah. I did. Um. One of my first solo episodes was on a pet peeve, a helicopter parents. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And it can't.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> It comes from, and it's so interesting because when I held my first child, I described to people, well, first of all, after watching my wife give birth, I I decided that I have uterus envy because, oh my gosh, that was amazing. Um, And second of all, as I'm holding my first child, I tell people, I'm like, yeah, um, apparently there's a crazy switch in in a brain. And when you hold a child for many parents, it gets flicked, right? Where Mm -hmm. all of a sudden – but before, like, I had a dog, and before I had a kid, that dog was my fur baby. And then, as soon as I got home with the kid, I was like, "Oh, that dog's a threat." And, and I love the dog, but but all of a sudden, the switch, the switch, right? The yeah. I have to protect this little human because I need it because they're very. You look at animals, you know, and I, I go to the the Animal Kingdom at Disney a lot with my kids, and and they talk about. A giraffe, a baby giraffe within minutes of being born is standing up and walking around and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of animals are like that. And humans know, humans know, humans are so fragile at the beginning. And so um, the the helicopter parent phenomenon, I think, comes from the parents not understanding that they have the agency to toggle that switch back off and that they need to. Yes. And, and the the more important thing, and, and love the love and logic system doesn't say this per se, but my wife and I always kind of said this. And then Michelle Obama, uh, uh, who in the U.S., she was a, a first lady, like a, mm-hmm. the wife of the president down here. Um, Michelle Obama said this. I heard her on NPR. I was like, oh, my gosh, I, I wish I had, like, copyrighted it or something because it's so valid. She said that that we're not raising children. We're raising future adults.
0: Yes. yes. And my,
1: my wife and I always thought that. We're like, we're not raising children. We're, we're raising younger people into future adults and I am so proud of the adults that my kids are are becoming like it's I I I can't even uh, and it's this is so diametrically opposite of how I was raised I mean entirely opposite
0: oh oh yeah I was so I was so sheltered in every sense of the word and 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 an only child so there was like Mm. nobody to break the ice and and I had a beautiful childhood my parents wonderful so there's no complaints but yeah notice and learn yes but i i always say to parents even when i when they were like hovering i would say they're going to think you don't have faith in them yeah to me that is the biggest thing you're you're telling them i'm going to fix this because i have no faith that you know how to do this and it's such an empowering switch yeah you know to give them like oh and even this whole when i started this podcast started to be um talking to parents of kids who are near divergent and special education and not, and it has now evolved into, we just want our kids to grow up to be themselves, not our dreams of what they should be, not what we missed out on. You know, university is still open, make your own application. So as kids are coming into college and choosing their programs, what would you say to parents about those programs about picking about allowing oh
1: my gosh uh so stop the pressure so so i'll give you a, a real a real quick story um well so first of all let me frame it and just say that it, the baby boomers mm-hmm. thought that okay you go to college to learn a certain skill set that is going to be a, entirely equal to a career and a mm-hmm. career you're going to work for that same company forever right i saw something on linkedin where it says the boomers uh, joined a company gen xers joined a profession. And the millennials are joining a life and building things around that. Right. And, and I'm like, I'm that. like, I'm like, yeah, my, my boomer in-laws and parents and stuff were, were like the company people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Me, I was, I was in my profession deeply, but I don't know, five or six different places. It's, you know, I kept moving place to place. Um, and, and then the millennials are, 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 are at least in the U S are dramatically changing our, our work life balance, which is amazing. So prop, props, props, props to millennials. But as to that question about the major, um, I was sitting in this this giant meeting with all of the these heads of industries and and um, and education. Uh, it was part of this consortium. And my in my city has, uh, gosh, I think two large universities with fifty thousand students each, and then like five or six small private colleges. I mean, it's mm-hmm. booming with colleges and universities. Uh, and then all all of this industry, FedEx and um, uh, uh, Volvo trucks. And Wrangler Jeans, if you've ever had Wrangler Jeans or Lee Jeans, that's from my my city. Okay. So I'm sitting here with like the CEO of of Wrangler Jeans, who, by the way, wears jeans to work, right? And the CEO of of Honda Jet and FedEx and all of these companies and all these chancellors. And we're talking about how to get college students to want to stay in our city. Our city is a little bit more geared towards families. They want college students to stay. And somebody who was at one of the liberal arts colleges – Said, I'm curious of all of these leaders of industry and all these leaders here. How many of you either studied liberal arts, at, studied at a liberal arts college, or studied like a humanities or social science at a state, you know, uh, public university? Almost everybody in the room. Almost mm-hmm. everybody in the room. The one exception was they had like the city comptroller, who's like the finance person, and that person had actually studied business. Everyone else, these these titans of industry had all studied humanities and liberal arts and these kinds of things. And so, you know, the idea that you need to rush to a STEM major, science, technology, engineering, math, because that's where all the jobs are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Stop. Just let's, let's just, let's, let's, there's sort of the mold versus unfold. Let your student Mm -hmm. unfold, right? The molding can happen by, by how you live your life. The example you share, I always say, I'm trying to be the elder. I wish I had had, right? Um, and so, but the idea, and, and I get it, I get it because paying the rent is a real thing, mm-hmm. right? Paying the rent is a real thing, and so, so for some people, um, can I can I share a little story about? Words. And, and I, I wrote an article about this once uh, in in a student affairs thing where. I, I worked at a Quaker institution, and if you don't, if your listeners don't know Quakers, committed to nonviolence, broadly Protestant, although some mm-hmm. Quakers would not even consider themselves people of faith, but more philosophical Quakers. Um, and I worked at this Quaker institution, and Quakers by nature are, are sort of against war and weapons and that kind of thing. And I explored this notion where I would go into all these classes with first-year students, and I would be the, I'm the assistant dean for career development, and I'd say – Come on into our center. We're going to help you reach your dream. Your dream is a worthy dream, my friend. Whatever your dream is, come in and we'll help you reach your dream because your dream is worthy. And then I had a student come in and say, well, I really want to work in the arms industry. In the, in the, yeah. And I'm like, huh, okay, wait. So, okay. So your dream is a worthy dream. I did say that. And I'm working at a Quaker place where we are staunchly and forever opposed to violence. And you want to work in an industry that only thrives if there is violence, and I had this moment of like, what? What what do I do? Right, what do I do?" Um, And so, you know, uh, those—I don't know where I was going with this exactly—but those challenges of, oh, the idea of rush to a STEM, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I when I was reflecting on this later, I realized that even though that's a choice I would never make, and even though it was something that I personally was opposed to. I I later learned that this particular young woman grew up with a single mom, and that they didn't come from much money, and that she had a connection with somebody who worked in military logistic uh, support equipment or something like that, and wanted a job there, and that was going to help her escape poverty. And so the layers were tricky. The layers were yeah. this, it, it, the, the layers were tricky enough that I got an art article published about it, and it, there were more things too about about you know. Um, Students that I'm helping to coach to get into graduate school, and they're, and they're sort of exploring, well, how much of their queerness might they put on the paper? Right? Might they put on their statement, or all, all the different things that um, are the trade offs that people have to make? And um, yeah, yeah, but but again, you know, to parents, and and this is the hard part is parents have their own work to do sometimes, oh. right? And so, so that's, that's the thing. And that's why the love and logic book is so amazing. So, so I'm, I don't, I don't sell these books. I didn't didn't write these books. I'm just a fan because parents who've experienced their own trauma or have their own baggage or want to relive their life through their kid and all the things, right. This book gives you a little wedge, gives you a little wedge to be like, okay, well, so I have the book and the book is this little wedge between this, this molding, I want you to be my dream of you, and the unfolding that's just going to happen because it's a human being that's on their yeah. own journey and their journey is going to go past your journey. Right. And so, so this book can be a wedge, even if the parent has their own things that, because a lot of us, you know, and, and I've had the privilege that I went to therapy when I was in my late 20s, changed my life, put me on a path of, of, of emotional autonomy and interdependent relationships and all of these things. However, not everybody has that, mm-hmm. and if you don't, and if, even if those words to some of your audience is like, "Oh, interdependent." Wait, do I am I going to have to Google things? Right, um, this book is sort of like it's sort of like Boundaries for Dummies, right? <laughs> there was a series of books, uh, in the yeah, US yeah, yeah, called like Computer Programming for Dummies, right? It's
0: Podcasting for Dummies, <laughs> right? Right, Podcasting for Dummies,
1: but it's like it's like how do you you know? It's so much of it's about boundaries, and and like you said, the helicopter parent thing. Love and logic resituates the parents from the fixers to the coaches. Yeah. And and when a kid, a short version I tell people is a kid breaks a toy and they come to you crying. Love and logic is comfort that kid. Because I remember what it was like to break a toy. That's a sad thing. Comfort that kid. Be, you know, love them, hold them, whatever, whatever it is that that y'all um, that, that signifies love for y'all. Then as they calm down. Don't go fix their problem, but be like, so that toy's broken. It's probably not going to be as much fun to play with. And you do have other toys. And, you know, if you to replace that toy, I guess you could, you know, do some odd jobs and earn some money and do the things. And I'll support you in that. As opposed to so many parents, they hear the kid crying over the broken toy. The solution is go buy a new toy. Yep. Fix it. Fix it. And so you're becoming this like, this like. Fixer of all things, and then once you start doing that, kids understand psychologically. Way without words, they understand. If I cry like this, I will get that result, and this will get fixed for me. Yeah, and that does not fare students well for life. It doesn't. Good luck in the workplace, <laughs> right? It, I don't to, like my boss. Uh huh. Uh huh. And mom's not coming in. Mom's uh-huh. not coming
0: in to fix the supervisor. Like. And it I've, starts so yeah, young, like it yeah. just needs to start young. It's funny, the other day, my son put a poster, a reel or whatever the hell you want to call it on Instagram. And it said, and we hadn't talked about this or anything, but it said, so I would come home and tell my mom that my grade six teacher doesn't like me. And she would say, and what are you going to do about that? And I was like, yes, it's yep. stuck because I would be. In high school, and parents would say, "No, I don't want Mrs. Jones for math because I hear she." And I would just say, "We don't student shop. Yep. You can't teacher shop." Yep. It's so funny because when they when you have even kids coming into grade nine, uh-huh. I would hear parents or even teachers, mainly the maths and sciences. Sorry, not sorry, but that's the way it goes. Uh-huh. We have to. This isn't acceptable. We have to get them ready for university. Well, no. We have to get them ready for second semester. Right. And then in second semester, we're going to get them ready for grade 10. Because if yes. you, the pressure we put on kids when they're 14 saying, yeah, yeah. Got to get ready. Got to be this. Well, you know what? That's like telling me in March, I need to be ready for Christmas. Not happening. No, no. It's not even happening in November.
1: And, and yeah. And the thing that's crazy is, is that like. Um, the things that they most need to be ready aren't always the academic things, right? And so like the SAT, and I don't know if north of the border, if the if Canada, yeah, the SAT is going away largely because people realize the SAT measures two things. Are you good at math and you have a strong command of the English language? Well, I got to tell you, getting through college is about resilience. It's about accepting when things don't go perfectly according to plan and adapting. It's about navigating a system. It's about, complex interpersonal relationships with roommates with faculty with it's those are the things that actually predict success in university not algebra and vocabulary like like the fact that we've boiled it down to algebra and vocabulary or just geometry and vocabulary is is really really silly you know um yeah those things are are those are important things i'm not saying those are not important things but those are not the important things those are just some of the important yeah
0: that's right. That's right. And when we talk about teachers, I was talking about the math and the sciences and I I hate to say this but there is this is no filter Cheryl so yeah. There's a in my experience a direct correlation between the teachers who graduated high school math and science went straight to university math and science became teachers math and science. Yep. And there is please go work in a bar.
1: Uh huh. Uh-huh, Please go uh-huh. work at
0: the local Tim Hortons or coffee yeah. shop. Please develop because those are the skills. Yeah, those yeah. are the skills you need to. You need to. You know, have the conversations. You need to be able to listen. You need to be able to. The customer's always right in the sense that the customer's always doing the best they can. So now your your student, your kid, whatever, they're always doing the best they can. And if they're not, we need to figure out what it is they're struggling with. But it's always start with. Oh, it must be really hard yeah that must be and, so hard you must be so frustrated whatever and you know repeating back how they might be feeling yeah and
1: Ugh. one of the things you're talking about i mean you know people call it emotional intelligence these days and it's so funny because you know I, and if your listeners can't see me i'm a white guy right and you know uh indigenous communities have had this notion for for millennia but But suddenly a a lot of Europeans in North America are like branding it. Emotional intelligence, come to, you know, I actually, I actually have a webinar coming up on emotional intelligence. So I I am exactly the guy that I just talked about, but like (laughs) this idea that, um, that, and when you look at the working world, uh, there there have been these surveys about like even just 15 years ago, what leaders were expected to have skills. And now, and two things have come out of quote unquote nowhere to Get, go up the list, which is empathy and inter- intercultural competency. And when I say came out of nowhere, people who do leadership development like me, we, we've we've been on this for for twenty plus years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But the corporate world in the U.S. is starting to go. Wait a second. Wait a second. So leaders should have empathy and and listening skills and and reflect on the perspectives of others. Oh, and speaking of perspectives of others. Uh, should they think about race and gender and and those kinds of things to hmm. be better leaders? Huh, I wonder, right? And so, emotional intelligence, like you said, and there is a thing where people who are drawn to math and sciences, and there's all these different frameworks. There's the work of John Holland who did this thing, uh, you you made the, the Discover or the uh, mm-hmm. the world world of work, the realistic, investigative, artistic, social, that yeah. kind of thing. Um, Myers Briggs, which I do a lot of work in certain types of people go sort of certain directions and then those directions become a feedback loop
0: Mm
1: kind of like you're talking about math science oh then more math science oh then more math science and they surround themselves with those communities where if somebody's not introducing emotional intelligence and those kinds of things they don't they don't necessarily show up
0: yeah exactly and we need to you know especially if you're going to be in this profession yeah yeah there's that human connection oh yeah that human connection that even if it's you know, once you start learning about it, you start embracing it, it might sound very foreign, it might sound like I'm learning Japanese. I don't know what the what is this feely feely shit, but right it becomes, oh, that's what it is. Okay, uh-huh. now I'm understanding. And that's the growth. That's a growth of the teacher, the parent, the kid.
1: Yeah, it's huge All and, together, And and not poo-pooing the emotional. And this is this is part of like misogyny, right? This is part of toxic masculinity of that emotions have something to do with weakness or emotions are less important than logic or whatever. And when I do Myers-Briggs workshops, I'm like, y'all yeah, stop it. Let's just stop. There are other interesting things. And this is a funny thing, I think. I, I often break a group into extroverts and introverts or people with extrovert preferences and people with introvert preferences. And um, I ask the whole group, I'm like, has anybody ever heard the phrase resting Mitch face? And and I say, and they're like, what? I said, resting Mitch face with an M. And they look at me, they're like, no, I don't think that's a thing. I'm like, yes, you're correct. That's not a thing. Because introverted men don't get their their affect policed by anybody. They're not, I, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I'm I'm 40 some odd years old. No stranger has ever just told me to smile randomly. Like <laughs> I, like like, oh honey, you need to smile more. Like I've never had that happen. Right. And and so then I turn to the extroverts and I say, hey extroverts, look at the introverts look at how many of them are women and, and bonus, look at how many of them are also women of color and think to yourself, have you ascribed aloof resting, you know, what face, have you ascribed, um, uh, you know, a standoffish or attitude or whatever, stop ascribing that now, stop projecting that onto people. Right. And so it's, it's the, this is part of emotional intelligence. I mean, as tried and true as the Myers-Briggs is, and the Myers-Briggs has its own complicated backstory, which I, unpack with people but um there's something about that that is that intersection gender straight on straight on because similarly with extroverted women especially with some of the other myers-briggs types but extroverted women bossy right extroverted men go getters (laughs) right and so it's like it's like wait wait can you can we not pick this apart a little bit better right um so the emotional intelligence piece you can start with extroverts and introverts and start with, mm-hmm. if you're an extrovert, it's like being a bird and introverts are like fish and, and fish think water is the norm and birds would drown in the water. And, yeah. and and fish think air, they'll die, which they will, but for birds, air is the norm. And so understanding that um, you've got to realize your own perspective is just your own
0: perspective and go from there. Yeah, yeah 100%, and, and for me, Emotion is energy, but it doesn't mean an introvert who's sitting quietly and not, you know, interacting. It does not have energy. They have energy, but you have to look. You have to, like, shed your, you know. I know my daughter in high school, like, I always got the call. She never raises her hand. She never answers questions. She never, and? And. And this is is who she is. Uh Uh-huh. And that's okay, you know, and that was always the meetings, always the meetings that just used to make me like,
1: yeah. And and to me, I think, and this is the thing, I think that extroverts are never really pressured by society to be more introverted, but introverts are pressured to be more extroverted. Every time I've ever seen a class syllabus that says class participation, this many points, as an extrovert, I'm like, yay, so uh, free points, Most people with introvert preferences, that's anxiety producing, right? Or they're doing math in their head. How many times will I have to speak? So when I do this, I I tell people to not to to be who you are, but also work towards moving to the middle when you've got good energy, right? In Mm -hmm. other words, we have to demystify introverts. You need to be more extroverted, but understand when it's time and introverts already know this when it's time to turn it on and turn it off Mm -hmm. and you know and then extroverts when it's time to turn it on and turn it off and by that i mean your mouth right for extroverts right yeah um and so understanding that builds builds empathy and builds grace and patience with each other and that's that's part of what we need right and so Mm -hmm. one real quick thing i'll tell you i had a student in a leadership group um uh, named named cecilia and after three weeks in the program, we met once a week for two hours. All the other facilitators came to my office. They were very concerned. They're like, we think Cecilia is really disengaged. And I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm like, yeah, I've noticed she's kind of quiet. And then I looked at the other three facilitators. And I was like, extrovert, extrovert, extrovert. Mm-hmm. Checked in the mirror. Yep, I'm still an extrovert. Okay, wait a second. What are we doing? Mm-hmm. Then I asked one, I said, has anybody just stopped her and asked her if she likes the program? So I said, I'll be in the cafeteria later. I'll flag her down. So I saw her. I said, Cecilia, tell me, tell me, how are you liking the, the leadership program? Oh my gosh. She was like, blah, 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 She was like, it's the best part of my week. And I've made so many friends and I'm learning so much, blah, 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 blah. blah. We had projected onto Cecilia that she was disengaged because her engagement wasn't loud like our engagement. That's it. That's it. Right. And we need to check it. We need to check that. And it's fair to say to Cecilia, Hey, are are you engaged? You know, your your extrovert, your extrovert classmates have already let me know through their nonverbals and their verbals and what they, they have already cued me, clued me in. Right. Mm -hmm. Are are you engaged in this? Are you, you it's fair to ask, but don't project
0: and assume. Right. Yeah. And are you, you know, we, Interiors can decide for themselves where where's a growth for me yes where's a growth for me not your growth where's the growth for me and are do you desire that growth right if that gives you energy watching somebody and think mm, i would really like to be doing that because that yeah. feels good yeah. great let's let's foster that but if not you know the whole thing about even, even this podcast is like, we just want our kids. We want everyone just to be their own authentic selves. And what does yeah. that mean? That means, like you said, coaching, I got your back, but here you go. You take the lead. You're the te- you're the team player. You're yeah. the quarterback and, and you need to make the play and then I'm there to catch you, you know? I, and, and I love that. I
1: love that. The the quarterback thing. I mean, you know, it, it, yeah, because because they, they are in charge of their own life. They are the driver of the ship of their life. Yeah. And and you know, if we if we try to drive for them, it's just gonna, it's we're gonna have boats crashing all over the place, right? Or or it's sort of like, you know, you don't see coaches in in football running out onto the field, right? You don't see yeah. that happening, right? They they talk to their quarterback, but once the ball is hiked, once the ball is snapped, that quarterback is is. The, the field commander, so to speak, they're they're making those things happen.
0: Yeah. And um, everybody on the field says, I got faith in you. Yep. Yep. And if you miss the throw, that's yep. okay. Let's come back and talk about it. But yeah. I got faith in you. And I think that's so big for parents to hear. You it have is. to let them know. Even if you don't. Even if yeah. you don't have faith in them, too bad.
1: Fake it. Fake it till you make it. Fake it, it till yep. you yep. make it. Yep.
0: Because they will prove to you, yep. left, right, and center. They yep. got it. I I,
1: I had a boss and and he was a great guy. Um, But his daughter was in grad school and I was in his office when he got a call from her again, she was a graduate student getting a master's degree. So in her twenties and she was sick and she went to like, you know, uh, uh, some little clinic and her dad was sort of lecturing her on the phone. And I just overheard this lecturing her on the phone about, wow, I wish you hadn't gone to that clinic. I wish you had gone to your actual doctor and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, I'm like, you, this is a gr- this is a grown woman that you're right. speaking to. And not just that, but she's sick and you're sort of, you know, comment making commentary on how she sought help. I'm like, that is as helicopter as, as oh I've heard. Gosh. Right. Yeah. And, and it's funny because um, that I ended up hiring years later, I ended up hiring that woman <laughs> in one of my offices and she was a freaking rock star. She was amazing. That was amazing. <laughs> uh, but, but, um, uh, and she also was an introvert who grew up with two extroverted parents and two extroverted older brothers and forever thought she was an extrovert. And I'm like, girl, you're not, you just had, you just didn't want to get lost. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you didn't want, you didn't want the home alone movie to happen to you. Right. Yeah. If you don't, if you don't speak up, you're going to get lost in the shuffle. Yeah. Um, but yeah. she, she figured out that she was an amazing introvert and, and a total rock star. So the, that but it's, again, I go back to this, the crazy switch, the, the crazy switch is real. And, and mm-hmm. so acknowledging when I, when I first had children, um, and then I would be at orientation at a university and see parents dropping off their kid. I had a different level of empathy for them and I had a different level of understanding. And, and I do understand where the helicopter instinct comes from. Mm-hmm. I have to honor that and acknowledge that it, it, it's real for me.
0: Yeah.
1: And I have to put that in a corner. I have to put it in its context. I have to, um, aspire to parent better than through instinct if that makes sense yeah and um and that switch i have to turn it off sometimes i have to Mm -hmm. be like you know my kid is gonna my oldest son uh we're from north carolina a medium-sized community and he's in college in manhattan and, you know, th- there are 11 million people in Manhattan and North Carolina, the state where I live, has 11 million people for the whole state. Right. <laughs> and so so in um, North Carolina, is probably about a third the size of Quebec. Right. I mean, it's, it's a big state with 10 million people. And yet New York City has, you know, and my kid is up there. Right. Um, one of the best developmental things I love is sometimes they will call me up and be like, you know, Dad, I, I took such and such train and such and such train. And we, we're going over to see this show on Broadway or going over to Brooklyn for the day or this, that or the other. And then the next call I'll get will say, Dad, how do you know when toast is ready? <laughs> and it. I'm like, this is developmental psychology 101. It is. He has the confidence to navigate the public transit system in New York City, which mm-hmm. I I barely do. After like <laughs> three visits, I, I'm starting to get there. Yeah, And yet, two. He's a little unsure about how, when, when toast is at its maximum readiness. And I, but and I
0: he can call you, he can and call me, ask you.
1: And, and I say to him, kind of like you say, kind of like, you know, I say, I say, well, when it's the right color brown for your taste buds, right. Mm-hmm. When it's, you know, and you, you mentioned that your kid, uh, that, that sort of callback, my kids, the word yet, I, mm. I so many times they would like, say, I don't know how to do that. And I'm like, you mean yet? I don't know how to do this. I'm like, you mean yet? Love it. And so now my oldest, who's nineteen, uses the yet on my fifteen-year-old. Except he's a little bit misusing it because my fifteen-year-old like tries new foods occasionally, and my older one's always trying. You should try sushi. You should try this. And he and then my younger son's like, I don't like that. And then my older son, you mean goes, you mean you don't like it yet? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm like, okay, so like you're it. a little bit misusing this. This is about it's about what you what you're able to do, not your not what you like. But yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that it has That's sort funny. of. And and I, I hear my I hear my 19-year-old young man's son saying yet to himself
0: yeah.
1: in our conversations. And it is, I am blown away. Golden magnets. Yeah. Stu- he's studying musical theater. And musical theater is a world where you are gonna face lots of rejection.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: When he was applying to universities, I think academically he got into like 30. But then through the audition process, only five of those. And so, think about the ratio there. That means yeah. that the other twenty-five show got a rejection letter, and not just that, but a rejection letter of something that might have been personal to you—a monologue or a song you sang, or some audition mm-hmm. material. Good point. And to be able to navigate that with resilience, oh my gosh, sets you up for for all of the things. Life, life's going to keep throwing those things at you. Yeah. Redirection. You're gonna, they're, redirection They're going to be jobs you don't get. They're going to be things that you're pursuing that you, that don't pan out. Yeah, and um, yeah. So I'm I'm exceptionally proud of, of the 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 young adult he's become, and is that. and is still becoming. You mm-hmm. know, yeah.
0: That's awesome. I I, I said to my kid once, not that long ago. It's like he uh, he just got engaged and he's happy, and and I'm divorced and you know went through all that, and so I was like, oh yes, like you're happy, like we didn't mess you up too much, and they both kind of went. Ooh really? (laughs) Oh, okay. I'm checking myself right now, but I'm glad that they can say those things. I'm glad that they can call me out. I'm glad that they feel like I feel so, I feel empowered when they call me out. on things I shouldn't say or things I'm getting wrong about race or community or whatever it is. Like, I just, that's what you want. You want someone who's going to question the adults question the authorities. And I love that. And I have to respect the time of this podcast. I feel like we could have three more. I want to talk about that book more. We want to break down that book. I want to do emotional intelligence, but I just want to say to parents out there, if you are feeling any kind of resistance to this conversation, Mm -hmm. Dig deep, step back and figure out where you might need to do some work because that's where it starts. And there's no blame. There's never judgment. We do what we can with what we have. But the resistance, if you're feeling like, oh, my God, what a bunch of bullshit conversation. (laughs) Maybe you should step back and think, huh. Let's reconsider.
1: Yeah. When I when I first started reading the book, I, I did. I was not on board. I was not on board. I'm like this. This seems like it. This seems like a one of those academic-y type things that works in some ways. But this is real life, my friends. I have a crying baby here, and thankfully I had a partner who she was all in on it. and And we went it. We went all in. And it it was it was a fantastic tool. A fantastic tool. And it's not the only tool. It's not the only tool. But yeah, yeah. it's a great tool just for resituating how you think about your role as a parent. You know, mm-hmm. you, are are you the fixer of all things? Or are you a coach empowering someone to learn to fix their own things? You know, because it's it's a, a dynamic shift there. Yeah.
0: So I'm going to put the link to that book and everything else. Where can we find you, Ellen?
1: Uh, you can find me at adaptivechallengeconsulting.com. Um, and real quick, over on LinkedIn, I'm actually going to do a free webinar. Oh gosh, end of this month, sometime on emotional intelligence. Fantastic. So if you like this conversation and you want to get in the free webinar, uh, it's on LinkedIn. And if you just search Adaptive Challenge Consulting on LinkedIn you can find out more about it there too but we're going to have a conversation about personality type and emotional intelligence and cultural humility and those kinds of things
0: amazing and we need a sequel because i think we need to break down the book
1: hundred percent a hundred awesome anytime. thank
0: you oh i really appreciate i'm so grateful for you the i knew the energy would be great i knew you would just blow my mind and you totally did and i just love it thank you so much dr alan Mueller. thank you for listening team minds redefined thanks for stopping by we're so grateful for your time Bye for now. Thanks so much. Teen Minds Redefined with Cheryl Pankhurst. New episodes out every Wednesday. Thanks for stopping by.